Escape Pod. 442B. April 10th. 2014. The Conclusion of Eater of Bone. By Robert Reed. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm your editor, Norm Sherman. This week we continue with part two of Robert Reed's novella, Eater of Bone. I know you've been waiting all week for it, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Without further ado, we bring you part two of Robert Reed's Eater of Bone. The world was bathed in sunlight. Not one winter cloud remained, and for the first days of this exceptionally early summer, the surrounding sea was brilliant and clear, cold to the eye and to the touch. But when the surface water warmed just enough, countless spores and seeds were shaken awake. One calm afternoon saw the transparent water fill with blue-black ink, and the following night brought the calming glow often called the summer milk. Furious biochemical reactions created that wistful silver-white light. She already knew this, but Mercer was full of obscure details and a willingness to share everything he knew. Thrilled with the sound of his voice, he happily explained how nothing mattered to that watery vegetation except to be near the surface once the summer bloom was finished. For heatweave and cather, and in particular the giant ocean bladderweeds, the goal was to be planted on the very top, sooty black leaves to the sky. For cooperative fickles and tuts and old henry balls, success was to supply the foundation for this buoyant, closely packed jungle, their deep roots pulling up the water desperately needed by the sun-broiled canopy. The origins of this elaborate system mattered. Mercer claimed as much, and she offered agreeable noises whenever he glanced her way. But when he spoke about evolutionary pressures and microchemistries and wondrous vagaries of chance, her mind wandered. Her life, what little there had been of it, had depended on hard, determined effort. The vagaries that mattered were her next meal and a stolen knife or two, and with luck, some hidden shelter where she could sleep for 10,000 uninterrupted breaths. She never needed to know how this rigid black summer skin spread across the world's water, or where it grew best, or precisely how an array of simple catalyst-impoverished organisms managed to build such a marvel out of light and air and drink. Mercer still used her joke name. Dream, he called her, and she let him, since the past didn't matter except when its lessons allowed her to reach the future. And by the future, she meant only her next few days, or, in her most expansive moments the rest of this unexpected summer. From a dozen vantage points, she gazed out at the fresh skin of the ocean, judging its thickness and its rigidity, and most important, how far from this long, rocky patch of land it had managed to reach. There was open water to the north, she observed. A deep, cold current runs out there, Mercer reported. A polar current. By midsummer, you won't see water. But the skin never gets thick, and the mix of species changes constantly. South was a more interesting direction. How close is the mainland? she asked. He offered one of his ludicrous figures, using a measurement system that still made no sense to her. She glanced at him, frowning. 
and he laughed and winked, and then only his face, he revealed the first traces of concern. As I told you, Dream, the continent is a very long distance from us. But will this skin reach all that way? Maybe, he allowed. But there's an undersea canyon between us and the rest of the world, and several big rivers keep the currents pushing. In your average summer, the skin finishes late, and it's never stable or strong. But you keep saying this is a hot, early summer. And when he didn't reply, she asked, Does the sea skin ever come early enough to grow hard enough to let everything that wants to walk, walk? She was wondering if she could leave the island. But Mercer didn't understand her thinking, or he chose to ignore it. Since I've been living here, he quietly reported, this island has been joined to the continent five times, five different summers. So many thousands of years had passed, yet he knew the precise number. She had no doubt that Mercer could tell stories about each of those long summers, but the topic was too speculative to hold her interest, which was why she said nothing else, staring out across the flat black face of the sea. She wasn't stupid. Mercer said as much a little too often, as if trying to convince himself. He liked to explain how her brain was nearly the same as the one he carried inside of his old, hard skull. Between their ears sat a bioceramic wonder, the culmination of design and evolution. Even if the flesh was peeled from her bones and the bones themselves were burnt and crushed, her brain would endure. Impacts and chemical explosions meant nothing. The hottest fires were ignored. Nuclear temperatures were required to consume what held her soul. Mercer mentioned that there used to be murderous weapons called plasma guns, but the last of them were disabled ages ago. Nothing in this solar system could manage that kind of blaze unless it was the sun itself. With similar minds, they had similar talents. Though her head was emptier than his, he might mention, speaking of past experiences as well as a multitude of bad old habits. Five difficult summers, he allowed. Winter meant open water, and water brought boats, but they were usually small craft piloted by lost fishermen or raiders navigating through the starless rain, using the taste of the land to guide them here. For the island, summer brought relative peace. Yet this year was the exception, and the water barrier would soon vanish. And just as critical, life on the mainland was going to be hard. The heat would be brutal. Cataclysmic fires would push through the interior. What if all the knots in the world one night dreamed of escape, and then every last one of them decided to march across the water, hunting for safer land? And knots weren't even the most dangerous threat. Mercer said as much with his southward glance, lips tight, and one hand playing with the red stubble of his hair. The girl woke early that next morning, alone in bed, and after a pissing into the special wooden bowl, she tracked him through his enormous house. Using scent and toe prints in the dust, she found her way to a huge yet cramped room normally hidden behind a bland beige slab of corundum. Here was Mercer's armory, an enormous stockpile of weapons of every age, every design. On the racks and deep shelves and stacked in neat, scrupulously organized heaps were enough implements to make an army of killers. Slaughtering knots was usually easy work. A long blade of tempered glass proved effective in most circumstances, particularly when wearing the nano-armor that hung from high hooks, breastplates and helmets, breeches and leggings designed to shrug off all but the worst blows from the natives. 
But something, an intuition, a nightmare, some private voice had compelled Mercer to clean the firing mechanisms and test the aim of several fancy, terrible weapons that she understood too well. With a fingertip, she touched the diamond barrels and plastic triggers and the carved wooden stalks that fit against only a human shoulder. Some instinctive piece of her was scared, warning her that she didn't belong here, begging her to flee before the ghosts of this place woke. Mercer stared at the rifle in his big hands. Last night I had an exceptionally lousy dream, he confessed. Dreams have meaning, she told him. He made a rough, dismissive sound. They tell you what you won't hear any other way, she assured. And it's always the same message. You're worried about something real, and your mind finds a lazy way to remind you. In my dreams, she began. Then she hesitated. He closed the rifle's breech and looked up, watching her eyes. More out of politeness than curiosity, he asked, What about your dreams? That's how the dead speak to us. He looked almost relieved. You believe that? My dead speak, she continued. My mother and others, too. Memories, he said with a shrug. That's all they are. No, no, she insisted. They come from the afterlife. He repeated the doubtful grunt, but not a whisper of skepticism lay in her voice. The dead come to help me find my way. Mercer wanted to laugh. She saw that in his careful face, in the hard grip of his hands, but he decided to push the topic back to where it began. I don't want to worry you, and probably nothing will come of this, but today, before anything else, I want you to find three good guns that fit your body, your tastes, your talents. This is a haphazard collection, but I can adapt my munitions. Whatever you choose, we will make it work. Most of the guns belonged to distinct, early recognized species. They could be grouped by age and shape and equality of their materials, and by the quirky design of their barrels and firing mechanisms, plus the occasional flourish left behind by famous, nameless builders, all of whom were long dead. Humans had spread across this world, but they were never common. Few had the skills, much less the tools, to create machinery like this. But there were the occasional lush times, and the gifted craftsmen could outfit an extended family and even its allies. As a rule, these weapons were tough, easy to repair, and deeply cherished. In her life, she had held three guns, only one of which was loaded. But inside this room, she counted a hundred guns and then stopped counting. Each one could throw a kinetic round or an explosive charge over long distances. In a marksman's grip, they would disable their target by shredding muscles and organs and temporarily shattering every human bone. How many have come here? she asked. Mercer pretended not to hear. How many of us have you faced? she persisted. Do your dreams remember? Given any choice, he would evade the question, but then he looked at her just for a moment and she saw several emotions swirling behind his eyes, including a self-astonished pride. Three hundred and thirteen, he allowed. They walked here? Some did, he nodded. Most came in winter, sailing their own boats, but our species has more trouble than knots do when it comes to navigating without stars or good maps. Besides, my fanheads always spot those raiders first, and I'm usually waiting for them when they make landfall. She watched his jaw tighten, eyes narrowing. Summers are worse, 
he allowed. Fanhearts have to fly north to feed over open water, so I don't have the usual eyes. And with the clear skies, the humans can know where they are heading, and if they also have a plan... His voice trailed away. This ancient creature was a marvel. By his admission, he had defeated more than 300 monsters, and he had survived every battle, managing to steal away their weapons and ammunition and who knew what other tools had been carried here from that distant coast. She wondered what was lurking inside the other locked rooms, but she didn't ask, turning away from him, pulling a particular gun off its wooden rack. Behind the rack sat a row of thick glass tanks filled with something green, each topped with an elaborate valve. She touched one tank. Don't, he cautioned. She pulled her hand away slowly. Chlorine gas, he explained. Awful, wonderful stuff. It would force our bodies into alternate metabolisms, and we'd have to regrow our lungs before we could take a normal breath again. She nodded, wondering where the gas came from. Is it for knots? If there's a lot of them, and if the wind offers to help me. She nodded without comment. The gun in her hands had a long, thin barrel designed to send a tiny charge across considerable distances. The diamond barrel had a trace of yellow, and it was slick on the outside, and she knew immediately which species of gun this was. That's too big for you, he mentioned. Too big by a lot, she thought. You'd be happier with something stubby, accurate enough but small, and with a lot more punch. He stopped working long enough to pull two candidates off another rack, but she kept staring at the weapon in her hands. I saw two guns just like this she mentioned, and not that long ago. Where was that? She smiled at him. Where did this one come from? The same as every other gun, from the mainland. Mercer might know quite a lot about knots, understanding their clads and sect families, but the politics of human monsters seemed rather more mysterious to him. After you destroy their bodies, she began. He waited and then asked, What do I do with them? With those immortal brains, yes. They watched each other's face. She was a tiny, tiny fraction of this man's age, and she lacked his experiences and all of his hard-earned wisdom, but her life, such as it was, had taught her what mattered most. With confidence, she said, If I was in you, I'd take everything that I could use of them. Everything. Then I'd walk out on the sea with their heads, and where I knew it was very deep, I would tie rocks to them and cut a hole through the water's skin, and I'd drop them down where nothing would ever find them. The man flinched. Then, with a tone edging near embarrassment, Mercer admitted, I've considered that, a few times, but it seems like too much. So what do you do? With the wide barrel of what would become her favorite gun, Mercer pointed at the floor. I have another room, a special room, he admitted, where I keep their skulls, labeled, and safe. Flashing a little smile, she asked, Where are they? No, he spoke quietly, yet the voice could not have been sharper. Some line of trust was being defined. Dream, no, never, and please don't ask me that again. She watched the dense black skin cover the sea, and she didn't quit asking herself when would be the best time to run, because she knew that she couldn't stay in this little place forever. A summer as remarkable as this might never come again. Yes, she was thriving for now. Her body had never been so healthy or felt half this strong, but to stand two moments in the same patch of rock felt unnatural. 
The life that she knew, the hard, inspired, honest, unburdened life that her mother had taught her, beckoned. Perhaps if this Mercer man were ordinary, or even just comprehensible, she would want to linger. But he was different from any human she had ever known, a strange and unimaginably ancient creature, secretive beyond all reason and far too in love with his ancient ways. When Mercer wasn't working, he was busily thinking new projects to attack. In his home were rooms filled with vats, and he would build hot fires and breathe the smoky fumes, enduring that misery while he refined some peculiar metal or semiconductor or odd salt. In the depths of the hill were a series of connected rooms filled with the turbines that gave light and electricity. One distant room, isolated and sealed, was where he made his fresh explosives and special not-killing poisons. One great long chamber was his shop, and it was full of complicated machines that did little more than sleep. But occasionally, he would wake one of those machines, using it to repair some broken device or shape a useful piece of sapphire or build an entirely new machine that had no function except to impress his guests. He even boasted that he could weave nanofibers and culture pure diamond, though he didn't presently have the time or need. And of course, he was consistently leaving her, for a day and sometimes for longer, attending to one of his nameless but very important tasks that involved his knots in the surrounding sea. It was a time-eating burden, being the monster deity. But when he returned home again, Mercer enjoyed his rest. Sitting on a chair or in their shared bed, he loved to reach inside his cavernous head, offering another tale about vanished ages and invisible worlds. As a rule, his stories had no ends and usually no discernible lesson. Often they were little more than noise. Yes, the old man was unquestionably bright, and his life on this island was an astonishing accomplishment. But somewhere she had wondered if the human mind wasn't as durable as he claimed. Some kind of erosion or madness was infecting his soul. He had become such an expert at living one very narrow life that he couldn't see his sorry decay, much less conjure up any fresh answers to questions long set aside. And the man had his rules. Some were small, others enormous, but they were usually unbreakable. He didn't want her crossing the barricade, ever, which was fine, since she wanted nothing to do with his precious knots. But there were so many rooms that she couldn't enter either, and so many topics that were strictly forbidden. She didn't need to know anything about the original human colony. The names of his old friends and lovers couldn't matter less to her. But knowing that she was forbidden to ask about his dead only made her want to know more. And worse still, Mercer began to control what she ate and how much. That was for the sake of her body, he claimed, and maybe he was right. But even when she was a child, no one had so thoroughly defined her life. Even her mother had let her explore and make her own spectacular blunders, preparing her daughter for that day when every last taboo would be lifted. The girl didn't often guess at the future, but when her mind drifted, she could imagine herself remaining here for years, and perhaps many years. But the next instant always brought an obvious, dangerous question. Why would a man such as Mercer live alone? She wasn't the first woman to find her way to his front door and not make herself into his enemy. But he was evasive when telling her how many others there had been. With words and long glances, he implied that every guest eventually returned to the mainland. But she had to wonder what happened if the love had turned sick. Maybe those past lovers hadn't left him. Maybe their bioceramic brains were labeled and stacked inside the forbidden tomb. Her working plan was to wait until a few days before winter, and then slip away without warning. 
That's why she stole nothing but tiny items that wouldn't be missed. Yet she compiled a larger list of treasures, items too important to leave behind, and when the time came, she planned to grab them up too. There was a favorite rifle that threw big explosive rounds, and a quiet pistol that fired kinetic rounds, and she knew a sack already filled with both flavors of ammunition. She planned to steal vials from his stocks of minerals, but only a sampling of the full inventory. If she were too greedy, she reasoned, then he would probably have to chase after her. A tattler skin shelter, tools, of course, spare clothes, and enough dried piss fungus to keep her belly full for thirty days. If she could carry all of that, she resolved, and if she reached land before the storms and darkness descended, that would ensure an easy winter and a better summer than any she had ever known. As long as she kept her guns and used the ammunition sparingly, she would be a powerful force in the worlds of noughts and of humans. If, 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 if. But which country was best? In her head was a loose conglomeration of facts and offhanded words that came from every voice she had ever heard. But there was a painful lack of precision. What she needed was a map, drawn out and defined in terms that she could understand. She had owned and lost a few simple maps in her days. In Mercer's living quarters was an odd machine that showed images that resembled maps. The lines and incomprehensible writing always made her eyes ache. But when he left one morning on some grand errand, she set to work trying to memorize some kind of maze, an interwoven array of tunnels and rooms far larger than his little house. But the only image resembling a world proved gray and dry and strangely smooth, save for a few odd mountains standing high above one hemisphere. By some means or another, Mercer discovered what she had been doing in his absence, and he was pleased. That smooth world seemed to be another one of his endless fascinations. What is this object? he asked, bringing the gray world back onto the screen. Any guesses, Dream? It was obviously important, but since Mercer responded best to ignorance, she shrugged and said, No, no guesses. I came from here. Is that the Earth? she asked doubtfully. Her response saddened him. He shook his head and for a moment before saying, It's not a world. It's a starship. You came here on that ball? Hardly. She waited, knowing the rest would soon emerge, and it did. For a long while he talked about an ancient empty vessel found drifting between the galaxies, and he explained how humans had claimed it for themselves and then took their glorious prize on a long circular voyage around the galaxy. He had ridden inside that ship for a long time, and then in a much, much tinier vessel he had come here. This ball moves in a circle? If it's still on course, he said, yes. So it will eventually find us here, she concluded. He shook his head. The starship never came this way to begin with, and I doubt that its captains would be interested in a place as remote and impoverished as this. I'm sorry. Why are you sorry? Are your hands steering this fat ship? The Great Ship. That's its name. Which was not much of a name, she decided in secret. With a dismissive shrug, she pointed out, Whatever this ball is, if it isn't coming back here, then it might as well not exist, and why waste your time thinking about it? It was her mother who warned her that she was going to have a baby, and in that same urgent dream she told her that the child was destined to die. But then the dead woman laughed, reminding her that every child meets that fate. 
The trick was to feed both of them well enough to assure a strong birth, and then she should teach her son, and it would be a boy, everything of practical substance. Then, if the boy were fortunate as well as strong, that sorry last day could be avoided for the next thousand hard and wondrous years. Then the young woman awoke, discovering that it was the middle of the night, the man lying close beside her. Now what? Her first instinct was to run, and run now. A life of ceaseless wandering demanded nothing less. But she was trapped, at least for the moment. Caught in the bed of this slumbering giant, she had no choice but keep still, breathing softly, carefully considering her reasons for whatever she did next. Nutrition was everything for the developing fetus. Mercer could lecture for days about tiny, nameless organs and essential rare earths and how exceptionally difficult it was for a body to build a new mind, but she didn't need fancy ideas to appreciate how selfish and rude the unborn were. They absorbed the wealth from every bite of food, every sip of water, and if that thievery weren't adequate, they would happily reach inside their poor mother's bones, stripping away her own reserves of precious elements. Every pregnancy was a tiny war, and when one side dominated too well, both fighters could perish. Her mother had carried at least ten fetuses during her life, and she had used all the reliable tricks, including sucking the sweat from her clothes and drinking her own urine. Of course, she ate as much as possible, which meant some disgusting and dangerous foods. Yet only one of the ten fetuses survived into adulthood. Three siblings died as malnourished infants. The other six developed too slowly, and when famine struck, their living home had no choice but stop the pregnancy and reabsorb what could never be finished. Remain with Mercer and there wouldn't be any famines. But this was his island, his home. In so many ways, she was the stranger in a forest that knew him by sight, and she couldn't imagine that day when she wouldn't feel like the ignorant, dependent guest. Stay here, and her child would almost certainly become an adult. But to what end? One child might be the first of five babies, or fifty. There would come a day when the fat land and its surrounding water wouldn't feed their family. In boats and on foot, her offspring would have to return to the mainland, attempting to survive in a busy, dangerous realm for which none of them were halfway prepared. But if she returned to the mainland now, armed and strong, she had a respectable chance of seeing her first child grow into the life that she knew best, a wandering, inventive existence that would survive long after this piece of land collapsed into the tide-swept sea. Mercer was a fluke. He was a species of one. What she felt for him was too fresh to weigh, too weak with all the gaps and wise questions. On the matter of children, she didn't know what his opinion might be, with her, or for that matter, with any other woman. But she couldn't ask. She didn't dare. Not without alerting him to a host of uncomfortable possibilities. Hard thought led to one half-viable tactic. Then she lay awake until dawn, and when Mercer awoke, she offered her fond hands and mouth, making love to him before lying on his long, bare chest and belly. Her knees tucked, and her new hand drawing circles in the dense, rusted red hair on his chest. "'When will we tell them?' she whispered. He heard the question, but the words didn't seem to make sense. A long moment of concentration was needed before he asked, "'Tell who?' "'You're nots.' "'And what are we telling them?' "'That I'm here.' She looked at his face, and when he finally returned her gaze, she smiled. "'I'm living here with you. You should announce that two gods are now ruling over this island.' He said, "'Soon,' with his mouth. But nothing else about him seemed sure. "'And I want to make my own mask,' she persisted. He said nothing. 
and I want to walk beside you, she continued, past the barricade, right down to the bay where the big buildings stand. I want every last knot to see the two of us together, holding hands. Not yet. When? I'm not sure. Why not? Because they aren't ready. She paused long enough to make him believe that she was considering that weak answer. Then, with less of a smile, she asked, When will they be ready? Knots are more instinct than culture, more ant than man. His own instinct was to lecture, perhaps to explain what an ant was. But then he doubted himself. Being the teacher wouldn't help, and in a rare moment of self-restraint, he stopped talking. And she surprised herself. Her first reaction was to feel fire surging through her body. Who would have guessed that jealousy would be her response? Jealousy directed at a pack of knots that seemed to possess this strange old man. Then she surprised herself a second time when she remained silent, choking back the justifiable anger, keeping it hidden behind a wide, meaningless, but very believable smile. Everything on this island hangs in a balance, Mercer said. Forces match forces, genes guide every important thought, and I'm not at all sure how they would react if they saw us walking as equals. She gave him a few moments to believe whatever he wanted to believe. Then she quietly reminded Mercer, Nothing is balanced. The world only pretends to be, darling. And most of us are waiting for a chance to throw everything out of whack. Three days later, fanhearts that had been feeding over the open water to the north and west returned home with important news. Knots were walking across the sea's skin, a multitude of strange knots, if those chattering voices could be believed, and they seemed to be marching for the island. Mercer appeared ready for the news. He spoke to his friends, deciphering distance and speed. Then he dressed in armor and selected a few weapons before telling the girl he would be gone for at least one night, and probably two. I'll turn them before they get close, he explained calmly. She nodded, saying nothing. I want them to run home scared, he continued. I want stories told that will frighten their descendants for generations. I'll wait here, she volunteered. They kissed, and he left. She counted five hundred breaths, and then dragged a big pack out of its hiding place and finished collecting the various treasures that had to carry her and her son for the next year or two. Then, with the pack on her shoulders and her rifle in one hand, she passed through the front door. She felt the forest watching her. Every tree was swollen with last winter's rain, but the dark air beneath those high branches was hot and treacherously dry. To be fair to Mercer, she took time to seal the stone door, and then she set each of the three booby traps that would stop the curious and delay the malicious. Then she believed that she was leaving, but, stepping onto the foot-worn path, she remembered a final treasure that was far too tempting, and she changed course. In the high heat of summer, the magna wood bladders were inflated with watery saps, each one of them close to bursting. She dropped the pack and rifle, muscling her way up the rope to the watching post. The bladder squirmed under her toes, and ripe fire retardants leaked through the pores, saturating the exceptionally dangerous air. She caught some, and then she reached the hidden post and wasted a few moments staring across the knots half of the island. Little moved in the blazing, shadowless heat. The green crops had been harvested, or they had died. The knots' summer crops were black and tall, patient hands having killed every weed and unwelcome mouth. With a little telescope, she studied the long bay with its mouth jammed full of rocks and mud and mortar and trapped water halfway evaporated. That stagnant pond had to be bitter with salts by now. She saw knots working on the dam, struggling to patch some tiny leak. 
Then she panned to the right and the left, and in the bright space alongside one building, she noticed perhaps a thousand knots enjoying the last of the day's brutal light. With her new diamond knife, she cut the little telescope free. Then she climbed down fast and shouldered the pack and hurried toward the south. Out from under the trees, the sun was enormous and fierce, but the day was nearly finished and the blistering heat wouldn't grow any worse. She was soon shuffling across the sea's skin, making even better time than she had hoped. The footing was excellent, except for the occasional muted wave, the sea remained still. The tides lifted the entire skin and then let it drop again, but all of the world's water was obeying these stately motions, and when the sun was gone, she broke into a slow but determined run. It had been a lot of days since she felt any fatigue. The sensation proved pleasant, like a cherished friend returning on cue. The ache of her legs and her shoulders helped keep her awake through the night. The heat faded, but only to a point, and then the sun returned as a broad red glow breaking across a flat horizon. She paused to drink and rest, sitting on her swollen pack. The glow brightened and the sun's face emerged, brilliant orange light licking across the black surface of the world. In the distance, on the brink of visibility, she saw dots. One dot, and then two more. Then she counted again, making out ten distinct objects moving lazily along the horizon. If she could see them, then she might be visible to their eyes. But a stand of some purplish parasite grew on the skin's surface, a watery little tangle of limbs and seed pods that she didn't know, and moving slowly, she dragged her pack behind the inadequate cover and sat again, guessing the distance and counting her breaths as she waited for this second band of uninvited knots to pass out of view. Either they were closer than they looked, or they were moving faster than she expected. The sun was hanging free in the sky when they passed north of east, and it would have been easy to pick up her pack now and march on, confident that no one would notice her. But she had stolen the telescope, and it seemed important to use what belonged to her, particularly now that she wouldn't have to stare directly into the sun. Setting the device on a tree, she looked into the eyepiece and pulled the inner tube out until the focus was found. And for a long while she didn't breathe. She forgot to breathe. And then her body begged for oxygen, and she managed a deep gulp and steadied her arm and the leg and closed her extra eye and bent down again, fighting to get the focus just so, counting the bodies until she was certain of everything, except what she would do next. On the perfectly flat terrain, Mercer had the tallest, farthest-seeing eyes, and his first glance was enough. The knots belonged to one of the fishing sect families. They could well be the entire family, judging by the drag carts and youngsters and the purplish-black sun-boiled exoskins. He found them at midday, dozens of motionless lumps scattered across a random stretch of the sea's skin. Each had its poncho-like skin spread out as widely as possible, the adults forming a tidy ring with their faces watching outwards, protecting their possessions and the little ones who slept in the middle. Only in the summer, and at this high latitude, only near noon, was there enough light to thoroughly feed the hungry knot. If mayhem was the goal, his timing was perfect. Lob a few incendiaries into the middle of them, and the rest would panic along predictable lines. After all, knots were simple, reliable souls. He had lived close to them for thousands of years, and when was the last time one of them had managed to surprise him? which was why he decided not to waste ammunition on creatures that would never damage his interests, even by accident. These were fishers, after all. Come summer, they hid their boats on shore and moved out onto the lakes and sea, and where currents seemed favorable, they would slice through the skin, spearing and hooking what the sun and chum lured to the surface. 
As knots went, they were poor, almost landless souls, and they were probably a long ways from home, judging by their indifference to the island and the famous monster that ruled its forested hills. Mercer dropped to his knees and waited. Let them rest. Let them eat sunshine and feel the heat quickening their watery blood. If he killed any of them, it would be a simple, clean warning act, an old body or a weakling child that wouldn't live through the next winter. But he hadn't decided what to do yet. He had always wrung a certain pleasure in being what he was, but even at the worst, the monster held tight to a knot of compassion. Empathy was another old habit. Even in rage, Mercer had the capacity to measure his violence, to hold back the blade and the bomb, understanding exactly what was necessary, and then using only a little more than that. What would he tell the girl when he returned home? People like her, these solitary wanderers, were often the most wonderful guests. Weak bodies and their hard upbringings meant they could be trusted, at least in measured doses. An old man's charities were readily accepted. Easy food and dry shelter meant a paradise worth cherishing. They would even accept his little wisdoms, or at least pretend to believe whatever truths he tried to share with them. And like this girl, those poor humans understood how even the tiniest mistake can bring violence and disaster. Which was only reasonable. Consider the girl. For her, compromise and compassion were last resorts. She appreciated the merits of blind determination, small-scale thievery, and how the mangled hand often delivered the winning blow. But she couldn't understand why a creature like him would vanquish his enemies, but then fail to sink the dead into the deepest ocean trench. It made no sense to her, and her response was to stare at him, a fierce, baffled stare, some piece of her soul probably wondering if she had ever known anyone more foolish than this soft old fossil. It was a measure of Mercer's fondness for the girl that he watched these helpless fishers. He decided to offer her a lie. If asked, he would describe a non-existent slaughter. He would tell her that he killed every naught child and most of the adults, sending a few survivors running back to the mainland. And if she didn't inquire, he would act grim but fierce nonetheless, using his eyes and a tight mouth to convey an understandable, respectable viciousness. If she's waiting for me, he whispered softly because he knew she was planning to leave. A shopkeeper in his former life, he always kept thorough inventories of his stocks and tools and anything else of value, and he knew exactly what was being stolen and how much she might carry comfortably. None of this surprised him. In some ways, he was almost pleased. It was the dangerous guest who took nothing. In his experience, if you weren't a thief in small ways, you were plotting to remove the owner and acquire everything that was his. But as much as Mercer liked this girl, he didn't allow himself to feel sentimental or unreasonably attached. After all, she was a wild child who had reached maturity despite several decades of hard deprivation. And as miserable as every breath had been, the life she knew was too familiar to surrender, particularly when it meant sharing the bed and food with a strange, eons-old creature. He knew what would happen. When he had stabbed her in the chest and dripped those essential and precious minerals into her dead heart, he understood that she would eventually leave. He had hoped for a normal summer and a longer stay, of course. In his fantasies, she gave him the time to make a child. That birth and the demanding infant would keep the wild girl here for several more winters, giving Mercer time enough to teach her more about this world and the universe beyond, and in little ways explain what he could about himself. Nothing of lasting importance would be accomplished, probably. Once Dream left, she would never return to the island, 
Dozens of women had come to his doorstep, accepting his charity and instruction, and then along very predictable avenues, they had built a small boat or walked across the summer sea, abandoning him forever. That's why he had always kept a little space between the girl and his heart. Too well he understood the human spirit was enduring, and deep habits were just as immortal as a favorite hand or the language of your youth. In his best dreams, women long lost and probably long dead returned to him. But they were nothing more or less than precious memories. The girl was superstitious to believe in ghosts, but that didn't mean Mercer held those who had passed in any less esteem, or what the brain recalled from ages past was any less sacred than what a few ghosts would mean if they were real, and if they cared enough to visit from the afterlife. Memory had a vivid, inexhaustible hold on Mercer's soul. And perhaps that was why he found this girl more intriguing than most. From the first time he saw her face filled with life, she looked familiar. In the nose and black eyes and the shape of her delicate, suspicious mouth, she resembled the woman he had lived with last in the lost colony. Dead little Deline. How long ago was that now? Forever, it seemed. And it was yesterday, too. Deline never had children, but every woman's eggs were harvested by the two-doctor clinic, and there was always the possibility that, after Mercer left, some other woman had used those eggs to begin her own family. But even if that was true, the resemblance had to be an accident. How many generations had those genes passed through? How many nameless families had begun and died before this girl, Deline's descendant or not, was flung into the rock above the high tide mark? Coincidences were only that but they provided a solid measure of his longings, too. As he sat on the blackish skin of the sea, on his knees, watching the knots do nothing, Mercer again warned himself that she was going to leave, and perhaps she had slipped away already, taking only a fraction of the treasures that he would have willingly bestowed on her if she'd had the foresight and courage to ask. And with that, he dropped that difficult subject. A mind polished by endless centuries of solitude had that talent. In the next breath, he was thinking about small, solvable problems and the endless chores waiting in his busy life. What gift would he grant his own noughts next, and what did he need to build next inside his machine shop, and what would be the shape and purpose of the newest room that he eventually carved deep inside that ancient hillside? His eyes drifted shut, and for an instant, he napped. Then he was awake, utterly and perfectly alert. One of the knots had stood, and Mercer's first thought was that the creature had noticed him kneeling behind a patch of Greylick weed. But the angle of those double-paired eyes was wrong. Then he heard a voice speaking in a simple, planet-wide language that was defined by the genetics, an instinctive language that had changed only slightly and very grudgingly since the human's arrival. Smoke, the voice said. The other adult knots began climbing to their feet, looking where the first knot looked, repeating the smoke squawk again and again. Before he turned, Mercer knew that his island was burning, but he wasn't particularly surprised, since it was such a hot, dry summer. The forested uplands had plenty of fuel, but he knew that the healthiest of the giant trees could resist the flames. Probably one of the south drainages was on fire, he decided. That's where they came first and hit hardest but that guess was completely wrong. His hilly end of the island stood on the horizon, the eastern region just out of view. A thick column of smoke sprang from a single blaze, and its position meant either that the sea north of his territory was on fire, a strict impossibility, or the knot's lands beyond were caught up in some unlikely tremendous blaze. He leapt to his feet. That was when the knot saw him, 
and that's when they began to scream, a single reflexive chorus splitting the air, everyone using one of the few words that had arisen during these last hundred millennia. Eater of bone, cried the little creatures. Eater of bone! Twenty-seven humans. More than once she counted the running bodies, never believing the tally, but the impossible number was always waiting at the end of her count. Twenty-seven, and every last one of them was an adult. Not in any experience of hers, nor even inside any old unlikely story, had she heard of so many people sharing one another's air. Except for Mercer's fables about lost colonies and left-behind worlds, that is. How could so many mouths find enough food? How could so many skulls share the same destination? And her best guess was that there were six or maybe seven women, which meant the extra men were laying awake nights, plotting ways to win or steal what was as valuable to them as any nourishment. She watched how they ran, studying their gates and weighing their packs by the bounce. Every last one of them carried guns, usually a long rifle, and they kept their distance from one another, as if expecting to see somebody fire on them at any moment. They were determined people with a goal, a mission. They had to be running towards Mercer's half of the island, but no, that reasonable wrong assumption was soon thrown aside. They were steering for the knots, and in particular, for those long, fingery bays where the big stone buildings stood just above the high water mark. The strangers never looked back. What mattered to them lay straight ahead. But even when she was certain they couldn't see her, she remained behind the parasite plant, counting her breaths and watching those runners grow too tiny to see anymore. And that's when she finally eased out into the open again, staring at her bulging pack. Except for the guns and ammunition, she left everything. She didn't run as fast as the others, and she followed a different line, retracing her own steps as the sun lifted and the heat lifted and the sea's skin responded by growing fiercely hot and dry beneath bare toes. The day reached noon. The knots would be outside now, basking in the sun. Every so often she changed her mind and told her legs to stop, and when they refused, she became confused. Where was her trusted fearfulness hiding? How would returning accomplish anything at all? But she was relieved, as well as puzzled. Fanciful, improbable plans swirled inside a head that had never been so rested or well-fed, and she kept returning the simple faith that her intuitions actually knew what they were doing. The first explosion sounded like the crack of a dried peg poke. She stopped running and listened, and just when she decided that the sea was making the snapping noise, a consequence of tides and currents abusing the thick skin, she saw half a dozen flashes of light and the bright yellow lick of flames rising up from the shoreline. The knot's buildings were burning. She knelt on the sea and watched, silently telling herself to turn now, turn, and go back. The mainland beckoned, and a life of relative wealth and constant invention. But then a traitorous thought pushed her back into the suicidal path. She imagined Mercer. This creature she barely knew was inside her. She could see him and she could hear his smooth old voice talking to no one but her. He was weepy and furious about what was happening to his knots, to his island. One life had spent eons in a tiny place, and all those habits had gathered on the soul because of it, an illusion of eternity that meant more to him than any sensible notion, and she had absolutely no doubt how he would react to this brutal assault. More buildings began to burn. Even across such a distance she heard the knot's wild screams. She rose again, and her shoulders slumped, and she managed to take half a dozen steps backward. Then a single fan heart dove out of the smoke-pierced sky, spotting her and diving close to shout nothing that made sense and that she understood nonetheless. 
Again, she ran toward the island. She felt trapped inside a strange woman. Reasonable terror and brilliant cowardice had been tossed aside. With the fan heart circling overhead, she finally reached the shore. The tide was high. Open, weed-choked water lay between her and a mudstone bank. She didn't hesitate, feet plunging into the warm, deep edge of the sea. One arm pulled and both legs kicked, and she held the stubby rifle high until her left foot kicked the sharp lip of bedded stone, slicing open the skin behind her toes. Then she hurried up the bank and into the great forest that welcomed her with shade and the rich smell of burning flesh. Kneeling for a moment, she pushed at the cut until it was healed. The wind was blowing down the length of the island. Through gaps in the canopy, she saw black smoke and glimpses of an afternoon sun. Obviously, her enemies knew much about the island and its inhabitants. An army like this could be everywhere. But she filled only one little place, forever shifting and never unaware. When she reached a familiar trail, she paused long enough to convince herself that only her feet and Mercer's had passed this way. Then she crept down to his front door, discovering that each of the booby traps remained active, untouched. She disabled them, and before she entered, she set them again. But waiting beside the door itself, that great slab of ruby rock, sat a little wooden box that she didn't recognize. She began to step back and then thought better of it. Standing on the only ground she trusted, she called out. Ten times she risked making the kinds of noise that should have drifted through the house's breathing holes. Mercer would have heard her with her first word. And where was he? Gone already, she decided, but she yelled an eleventh time regardless, and that was when a body kicked the ground behind her, and his careful, very soft, asked, What are you doing? She turned. He was dressed for war. A huge man with muscles and tough bone, he nonetheless looked tiny inside unfamiliar armor and beneath the various munitions. Steel boots covered his feet. The ancient mask was as clear as clean water. His face was exactly as she had expected a tight jaw and the red beard and the squinting, uncompromising eyes, little beads of sweat running through the whiskers and the throat jumping a little as the voice said, I thought you'd left me. No, she lied. Dark, skeptical eyes stared at nothing but her eyes. I did leave, she finally admitted, but I changed my mind. He insisted on saying nothing. I saw them coming, she explained. Then she reported their numbers, and the equipment that she had seen, and the arrow certainty of their motion. Mercer's only response was a slight, silent nod. Once again, she looked at his gear. Where did all that shiny armor come from? She hadn't seen it hanging in the armory, she realized, and his rifle was different from the others, although she couldn't decide exactly what made it so unlikely, so strange. Sensing those questions, he said, Hyperfiber. What was that word? I stole several sheets of it when I abandoned the colony, he rapped hard on the flat breastplate. This was scavenged off our starship. Your gun? I designed it and built it myself. He aimed at the sky, adding, It has an exceptionally long reach and some very special shells. I don't care, she said. See? He pulled one bullet from the breech and tossed it up. She caught it, astonished by its weight. Metal, he said. The object was long and tapered at one end, its smooth face reflecting the world around it. He said, That one is lead and silver, mostly. I don't care, she repeated. You can't beat them. You think I should run away? But she knew he wouldn't, and that was why she shook her head. 
We can go underground, she said. We'll fight them when they come here. She almost believed those words and every other crazy utterance that spilled out of her mouth. She and Mercer had their booby traps in the hard old hill, plus a maze of tunnels in which to hide. Their armory and living quarters were stocked and ready for a long, long siege. Sure, an army of monsters was coming, but they'd brought only what they could carry, and most of them were men, and eventually their little peace with one another would break down, and they would fight with each other instead of the two of them. Why did you come back? he interrupted. He might as well have asked about the far side of the white moon. She had no ready answer, or even a half-convincing lie. You did leave me, he pointed out, and then you didn't. It made no sense to her, either. She admitted, I don't know why. He dropped his gaze. Then she said, Maybe, before her voice fell away, Maybe what? Every breath tasted of smoke and burning knots. She managed a deep breath before saying, I'm pregnant. If anything, he looked offended. He shook his head saying, Then I'll ask again. Why? Why endanger yourself and the baby? There was no answer to give. Looking at her own hands, she had to admit, I don't know this person. Maybe what it was, is, his voice trailed off. She said, what? No. What? She pressed. Then she took a sloppy step forward. The new trap was triggered. A simple gun inside that wooden box aimed at her back. A copper bullet was driven past her ribs and through her ribs and heart, and she dropped hard on her rump, feeling nothing but warmth and surprise. Mercer leapt, dropping the rifle and slashing the air with a diamond sword. An insulated wire ran from the box to her chest, and he cut the wire an instant before a staggering jolt of electricity ran up into the wound, cooking her insides. Then he knelt and yanked at the bullet until it dropped free, and gently he set a hand over the tidy little hole. I don't think your siege plan is awful, he finally admitted. But whoever they are, these people know me, I'm sure of that. My guess? One of their women lived here long ago. Or some old girlfriend of mine talked to one of the men and told too much. Either way, they're probably prepared for a long fight. So if I am going to beat them, I have to do it now today, before everyone's dead but them and me. He had to save his knots, he meant. She coughed hard, tasting the sweet iron in her blood. He pulled off his helmet and kissed her twice, and then he opened the ruby door and dragged her limp body inside. Then he kissed her once again, on the belly that betrayed no trace of a baby yet. You'll heal quickly enough, he promised. She already felt her toes wiggling. Those other monsters have made plans, he allowed careful plans. But then again, there's one element they won't see coming. Me? When you have your legs again, he began. What do you want? He told her. She nodded, coughing one last time. Then he put on the helmet again and touched a switch, causing the faceplate to turn black as a winter night. Then quietly, tenderly, he said, I love you. Whatever your name is, I do love you. Generations of laborers had invested their lives shaping a titanic block of gray-white basalt. Sapphire chisels had dug into the stone, creating the rough approximation of a human form. Then mud laced with diamond grit was used to polish and smooth, finishing arms and legs in the powerful torso, and finally the frightful mocking mask laid over a face that none had ever witnessed.
Here was stark evidence for the power of honesty over any singular artistic genius. Every detail was rendered with relentless perfection. The hard fibers of each muscle, every vein in the menacing fists, and those gray-white eyes, big as platters, staring forever into the knot's homes. This was the island's lawful ruler. Not Mercer, but this gigantic testament to fear and adoration. Without any prompting on his part, the sculptors had captured the individual hairs trailing down his long bare back, and they understood the precise angle of every bone as well as the bare human ass, and several of those exceptionally thorough creatures had even managed to replicate what was the most unremarkable male genitalia. Mercer slipped past the stone god, kneeling behind a long slab of polished magna wood. Two old knots and a child had died recently. Relatives had prepared them for the afterlife, peeling away their exoskin and revealing spidery bodies that were treated with their family blood before being carefully laid out on the altar, waiting for the honor of being carried into the monster's realm. A knot's rotting flesh produced a horrific stink. Mercer held his breath, reading the sun-washed country before him. Twenty-nine invaders? That still seemed like an enormous, unlikely number. Yet he trusted the girl's eyes, and even if she hadn't returned to warn him, Mercer would have recognized the awful stakes. His home had been invaded, obviously. What this army wanted was nothing less than to kill him and then live here forever. And all of this smoke and carnage was nothing more or less than a brazen, carefully planned message meant for an audience of one. They were taunting him. One way or another, they would draw him into their fight, and somewhere, in the ruins, a careful trap was being set. Yet that could play to Mercer's advantage. People crouching inside secret holes often felt too safe for their own good. Whoever these invaders were, they probably expected him to sneak down through the crops and between the intact buildings, but they couldn't know where he would come from, or when. Twenty-nine pairs of eyes looking into the shadows, expecting a slinking, fearful soul, and that's why Mercer forced himself to stand and breathe deeply, ignoring his nausea as well as the host of reasonable, useful fears. He ran. Holstered pistols bounced, but his rifle was tied securely to his left shoulder, and with his armor and light pack cinched tight, he could easily maintain this long, efficient stride. Against every instinct, he kept to the perfect middle of the lane. He didn't bother watching for hazards that he likely wouldn't see anyway. Let the bastards hide where they wanted. What mattered were speed and surprise. His only focus was the ground straight ahead. When the lane twisted left and began to drop, he consciously lifted his pace. And where the farmland started to dissolve into the tall stone apartment buildings, Mercer pushed his body and cargo into a blurring sprint. Pure human genetics couldn't have managed this relentless pace. Mercer forced his fit, well-fed body to unleash all of its talents. Metabolisms lifted while pains were obscured. His heart roared. His lungs massaged every breath. Oxygen made his bright blood sing. Like two streams merging, his lane joined with a neighbor, and moments later he sprinted out onto a wide stretch of open ground. The knot's version of a public plaza. The space was paved with tightly fitted corundum stones and lined with tall mirrors that gathered the low northern sunlight. A little stonehenge stood in the middle of the plaza, showing with shadow exactly where they sat inside this summer. Here was where Mercer fully expected to suffer. Some sniper would suddenly notice him and aim a little too quickly, opening fire before he was ready, and then this miserable waiting would end. Yet nothing happened. 
The next few moments of running lasted for ages, and then Mercer escaped the open ground, slipping back between the tall buildings again. He was surprised, disappointed in a fashion, and then as he thought about the situation, he became terrified. Was he going to have to run back and forth like a madman, begging to be noticed? Or worse, could his enemies have anticipated his tactics? The invaders weren't here. He thought it and then believed it. Somehow they had slipped past all the watching, friendly eyes that guarded Mercer's forest. The fan hearts and Dulanes and such. They had lured him here, and now they would steal his home. He hoped Dream had healed enough to run away, using her legs and paranoia to keep her safe. Thinking of her, Mercer slowed his pace, just a touch. Crack! The first round missed, skipping off the pavement ahead of him, bouncing and detonating with a hot red flash. His momentum carried him through the explosion. Then he jumped to the left for no reason but to jump, to ruin the next shot. But the marksman guessed right and put an explosive charge into his chest, and the blast slammed against the hyperfiber armor and every rib beneath. Mercer felt his feet lifting, and then he found himself on his back, but perfectly conscious. He rolled and stood and ran blindly toward the nearest door, a dozen tattler skins woven together and painted with yellow lettering that told all who passed the significance of this building. He was barely through that opening when two explosions went off together, flinging him into the little knot stairs that led up into the nesting house. Mercer picked himself up and climbed. At the top of the stairs, a single guardian remained at his post, a sturdy, mature knot armed with authority and habit as well as a sapphire-tipped spear. The creature barked the traditional warning at the intruder, and Mercer replied by declaring his identity and demanding help. But the building was being peppered with grenades and kinetic rounds. The knot heard nothing that convinced him to quit, and he must have believed that this was one of the invaders. He lifted his spear and drove the tip upward, aiming for a gap in the unbreakable armor. Mercer had no choice but shove the knot aside, and when the creature stubbornly tried to get to his feet again, Mercer used a short sword to finish the useless fight. The nursery was built to never burn, which was helpful, and it was tall, which gave him a sniper's power. But there were several doors and endless windows intended for ventilation, and that meant that no one fighter could keep the army at bay for long. The gunfire fell off, vanished. Mercer slipped into a long, narrow room where the windows faced south, admitting the afternoon sun into a realm where unborn knots lay inside their transparent cocoons, the first exoskins wrapped tight around half-defined bodies that were hung from the stone ceiling, each of those unfinished faces habitually following the sliding of the day's light. A pair of the cocoons had been shot. Mercer measured the wounds and guessed the likely angles of fire, and he crawled between two windows and shucked off his pack and his rifle and pulled a dulled piece of mirror out of a pocket, using the dark reflection to study both of the facing buildings without letting the sunlight offer up his position. Someone launched one kinetic round. On the lane below, a single knot screamed and died. Mercer made himself do nothing. Nothing. He would let the monsters sit and wonder if he'd managed to get away from them somehow. Make them crazy, at least for a little while. The next few minutes were spent unfolding and then studying a piece of high technology, the highly detailed map of the city, including not only what the knots had built in the last ten generations, but also every chamber and abandoned sewer and paved-over cave that no living creature besides him was aware of. Knots were gathering in the lane below. Their long feet moved in a rough unison, a desperate muttering building. Dozens of them had crawled out of their hiding places. There could be a hundred of them, even more, and then he heard prayers to vanished gods and, thankfully, prayers intended for him. 
The Knots had learned about this fight at the nursery, and they were coming to rescue their children, which wouldn't have happened if the enemy had struck him in the open, in the Stonehenge. That would have been better for everybody, Mercer told himself. But you can't live forever, he muttered to himself, not wasting your head thinking about what-ifs. You can't. The snipers opened up on the converging knots. Prayers turned to wailing screams. Across the lane, two windows sprouted guns, and Mercer lowered his mirror and lifted his rifle and turned on the laser sight, and then he came around smoothly, kneeling low, waiting for the first human face to fill the eyepiece before punching three fast shots between the eyes. He pulled back, grabbed his gear, and rolled, and then ran hard. Grenades dove through three windows, spinning and then exploding, sticky gobs of napalm splashing across walls and the helpless cocoons. Mercer dropped beside another window and pulled out a single bomb. One of the treasures that he stole from the original colony was the chemical knowledge of his species, and with the resources and ample time, he had managed to concoct some wonderfully potent species of pyrotechnics. A hundred knots were dying below him. Again he wheeled and aimed, punishing the next human face with a single round of lead and gold and silver. And then he set the fuse and flung the bomb at the open window, his aim not quite perfect but the gray aluminum casing slipping across the sill and bouncing inside maybe two seconds before the blast incinerated flesh and bone, half the apartment building shaken to pieces and collapsing onto the street below. A fresh handful of humans joined the fight, spraying explosives through the nursery windows. But Mercer had slipped away. He was charging down the back stairs, pack and rifle held high in one hand, and maybe two dozen knots coming up into the nursery from the flanking side of the building. They could smell burnt flesh, pure death. A peace that had lasted longer than their lives had been lost, and every old instinct forced them to act crazy and stupid, rushing up those same stairs even when they couldn't do anything that would matter. The human monster shoved his way into them. His plan was to find the latrine at the building's low end and open the floor with a shaped charge, then work his way up along the sewer line. In principle, he could reach the farmland without being seen again, but the smarter plan would be to pop up periodically, hitting his enemies with a few shot and blasts, making sure their focus wouldn't fade. He wanted to make a very specific retreat. That was the goal. But Mercer didn't expect to round one corner in the narrow hallway and find a human monster ready for him. He threw his pack at the figure. She had a long rifle meant to fire little bombs, and she managed to avoid firing until the pack had fallen at her feet. Too late. He threw his rifle to his shoulder. Her first shot struck the hyperfiber plate over his belly, bouncing off and detonating at his feet. Mercer was flung back, his boots torn apart, feet burnt to the bone, and then he had his shot to take, and he even managed to fix the laser on that point on her neck where half a dozen solid rounds would probably break the spine and cut the head clean off. What had made him pause was a mystery. Maybe it was the woman's age, which seemed very young, or how terrified she looked to him just then. Or maybe he was startled, noticing the swollen belly that made her nanofiber armor next to useless. Or it was her gun, which was the same type that Dream had seen in his armory, the model carried by that young couple who had tried so hard to kill her just last winter. In an impoverished world, human bone could be a precious resource for any woman expecting to give birth. Was her pregnancy to blame? Unless there was no hesitation at all. Maybe the first blast hurt Mercer worse than he had realized, and he wouldn't have gotten off any kind of return fire before she shot again, blindly, but with extraordinary luck. The man was flat on his back, and the hard stone floor and the bomb passed between his belly plate and chest plate. His hyperfiber contained the blast, making it worse. 
Guts were shredded, and his heart quit, and those scorched lungs opened up to the air, and he howled and dragged himself backward, and she fired one last time, aiming carefully and missing by quite a lot. Mercer shot her once, in the forehead. The bullet knocked her off her feet, giving his body time to rouse several anaerobic metabolisms. Then he dragged himself close enough to use the diamond sword, hacking at that long, limp neck until it was cut through. And he set two of his big bombs on long timers and left them under his pack. And he took only his rifle and sword and a pair of grenades crawling for the latrine door, flinging in one grenade and then the other, battering a wide hole in the floor before he pulled his near corpse to the edge. He clung there, smelling the rancid chemistry of an alien sewer. Mercer asked himself if life could be worth this kind of misery. Then he rolled and fell into the gaping hole, his impact cushioned by water and the stinking gelatinous filth. And because the building above him was about to collapse, he forced his battered body to stand, and he convinced his exhausted legs to march upstream. His guts held in place under his hand while his thoughts, such as they were, revolved around the woman that was still waiting for him. She began to work even before her feet quit tingling. Following Mercer's precise instructions, she slipped into the armory and found everything that she needed and filled the same huge pack that the man had used when he came to rescue her, all but dead on the shoreline. Then she stomped her toes a few times just to make certain that her legs had recovered. Shouldering the pack took three attempts, and the hike proved far harder than she had imagined, but there was still daylight when she reached the hilltop, and she dropped the pack against the magnawood tree with its camouflage blind. The next few hundred breaths were spent studying the slope to the south. The big fires down by the sea were beginning to die back. She wasn't certain about the timetable, which meant that she might already be late, but Mercer had been explicit. The trap would work, or it wouldn't work. They would never get a second chance. The incendiaries were not particularly large, but he had promised that they had a hard kick, and the fuses could have been any brown cord, which was why she invested a few moments cutting an extra length of fuse and wrapping it around the magnawood trunk before setting one end on fire. In two hurried breaths, the entire fuse turned to sparks and ash. As she had hoped, the water-gorged bladders protected the old wood. No premature fire had been started. She fixed her first bomb to the trunk's base on the south side and tied in the brown cord and laid it back to where she would sit unseen. Then she grabbed several bombs and all of the fuses and worked her way down the slope, selecting only in the largest and the weakest trees. Mercer had gone past the barricade to put up a good brief fight. He wanted to do just enough to get every human's attention and rage, and then he would lead that army on a long, painful retreat, bringing them here during the night, hopefully leading them through this particular drainage. Her job was to mine the slope and then hide, waiting for that perfect moment when she would drop the entire forest on their heads. The little bombs would spray fire, and if enough of the tree's watery bladders were punctured, and if enough deep wood was splintered and exposed to the atmosphere, then what would begin as an avalanche would turn into an enormous cleansing bonfire. With each bomb set and each cord laid back on top of the hill, she found herself more and more believing in Mercer's plan. About when she expected to hear gunfire, the muted explosions began to drift from below. She paused occasionally, listening carefully, trying to piece together an accurate picture of the war. But then came a final big thud, followed by silence. And she returned to her work as the sun set and the night rose up from the dried steam bed and then fell from a sky full of close, bright, and astonishingly colorful stars. 
Her hands knew what to do in the dark, and she soon discovered that every bomb was set and there was no more fuse to cut and splice and lay out. Satisfied, she returned to the hilltop in the hidden place where thirty cords lay together, waiting for any excuse to burn. She listened for another battle, preferably from some place nearer. None came. But she didn't let herself worry, not yet. Having fixed her future to Mercer, she found herself willing to accept his skills and experience and his confidence and what she considered to be his bottomless well of luck. The man was coming, she told herself. As time passed, the gold moon rose over the eastern sea, washing the hillside with its slippery wet light. Maybe in the next breath or two, Mercer's armored body would appear. She pictured him shoving his way up along the drainage, defiant and unbowed, firing back a few times just to make his pursuers hold their pace, and then pausing at a predetermined point and signaling his survival to her with that bright red laser. She had to believe that he was coming, didn't she? But then at some point, without warning, her mother interrupted her unheard-of devotion. Run, the dead woman advised. In the softest whisper, the daughter asked, What? That man is lost, declared the ghost, the phantom, the memory. You know where you left your pack, so run to it now and push on and don't bother looking back. No. Then after a long listen to the silence, she admitted, He should have been here by now. Lost, the phantom repeated. Perhaps so. And if those monsters find you, then you're lost as well. She told herself to remain in her hiding place, to give Mercer time, to give him every chance, but her body was suddenly possessed with energy, nervous but ready, and the best she could do was make herself stand slowly, stepping nowhere, watching the valley below and discovering a numbing despair that had been secretly brewing for a long time. From the opposite slope came the hard, quick voice of an alalal. To give her mind some job, she began to count her quick breaths. Remember what I told you? Daughter, the phantom continued, before my death you were kneeling over me, tending to me, but the dying have few needs except to be heard. I listened, she reported, interrupting her count. What a beauty life is, I told you, and I promised you that small moments in every day would contain some lovely good thing to soothe the eye or sweeten the nose or linger inside the happy ear. Quiet, she begged, but the phantom refused to obey. Quietly, but with force, it reminded the grown daughter, I promised you one treasure for your day. She realized that she was weeping, and she had been weeping for a long while now. What were the treasures, daughter? No. I was dying. You weren't dead yet, she muttered, probably too loudly. I was lost, the phantom said. Starvation on top of endless malnutrition had shriveled her mother's badly depleted body. The woman had insisted that her child eat everything available, which was very little, and that final deprivation meant that even cuts that should have healed in moments refused to knit. Organs, named and otherwise, were plunging into hibernation. Old wounds were resurfacing, and each labored breath could have been the last. You did what you had to do, daughter. The strength drained from her legs. Slowly she dropped to the ground and wrapped her arms across her bare knees, sobbing peacefully. I was lost. I could have buried your body, she interrupted, hidden you and come back again with food, with nutrients. That wouldn't have happened, the phantom replied. 
In my pack, she said, looking south toward the sea, I have enough treasures to make you over again, bring you to life and back with me. Your child needs those gifts, darling. I didn't have to, the young woman muttered, mouth against one knee, the salty taste of her own flesh making her guilt even worse. Your bones, they were just a few little sticks at the end. Mine became yours, the phantom assured her. But that sorry truth just made her sicker and sadder, and she pulled the palms of her hands across her wet eyes and choked back a deep sob and let little gasps leak out while the phantom said, Sticks, yes, spent, yes, but still with little nodules of minerals that you needed worse than any dead lost soul would need them, and that was the beautiful heart of our day, daughter, regardless of what you pretend to think. Another alalal spoke in the darkness. She looked up, looked around. What would she do now? Run, the dead mother advised one last time. Then the young woman rose to her feet again, finding the strength to retrieve her rifle from the hiding place. What she would do next wasn't decided. She didn't know her mind yet, and it might have taken another thousand breaths before she finally gave up the wait. But then came the sudden thunder of bombs. Exploding to the east and south, she turned in time to see a flash rising from where the barricade divided the island into its two halves, both his. She ran, then halfway down the rocky slope she stopped. What good could she do in this fight? Her task, his hope, was for her to be where he expected her to be, waiting for the signal. Always, impulses seemed to rule over reason inside her. She chastised herself and managed to turn around, starting to climb again, when a voice she didn't know screamed, The forearm! The left forearm! And his damned gun, too! I got it! Mercer was injured. Blood! the voice said. A woman's voice. Look for blood trails! Badly hurt, she realized. Some man asked, Which way? Another man said, Here's a track, here. Where the dry stream poured down into the farmland, human shapes were moving. Brush was snapping. She heard overlapping orders. A single man stood in the moonlight for a long moment, presenting an easy shot. The enemy believed that the war was won. Whatever had happened before made them feel safe and powerful, and obviously they didn't have any hint that she was standing nearby, eager to spray explosives down across their heads. Instead of firing, she crept silently along the slope, trying to guess where Mercer was. A kinetic pistol fired. Half a dozen larger weapons slashed at the trees, starting fires that sputtered and died as the ripped bladders bled over them. Then somebody yelled, Quiet! And then, What do you see? In the chill light of the moon and endless stars, she saw the familiar shape struggling to run. He was still some distance ahead of his pursuers. The hyperfiber armor still encased the powerful body, but it was obvious that nothing had worked as planned. Mercer was staggering, two steps, and he dropped to his knees while the stump of one arm flailed senselessly, and then he rose again and did nothing after that, too spent to manage even one weak step. Mercer was still too far down the drainage, exposed and caught in his own trap, too. She ran, pushing down the slope while working upstream, running out onto a bed of dried, dusty pebbles. She was above him. Even facing her, he didn't seem to notice anything amiss. Walking was everything that he could manage. 
and he did it erect, shattered feet dragging on the rocks and the armor catching the moonlight, making him all the more obvious, and what sounded like a sponge worm squishing every time his nearly useless lung managed to take another breath. The army closed on their victim. She heard the monsters talking openly, happily, an infectious mood, a kind of celebration, erased all but the last shreds of caution. She even heard two voices near the front arguing passionately about which one of them should get the final pleasure. On her toes, she ran toward Mercer. His helmet was missing. A burnt face managed to see her as a shape approaching, and he lifted his final pistol and tried to fire with the empty chamber, perhaps puzzled by the useless series of clicks. She kneeled and aimed, flinging a half-dozen explosive rounds over his head. The blasts flung him to the ground. She had never heard so many humans speaking at once, and every last one of them was cursing. A new gun, someone decided. He must have stashed one. Nobody wanted to get battered now, at the end, so they hunkered down waiting for Mercer to make a fresh mistake. He was fighting to stand one last time. Lying on his chest, he looked helpless. She came close and dropped flat to put her mouth against his ear, and tasting ashes, she said, I'm here. He didn't answer, but his body seemed to relax, slightly. She grabbed his surviving arm and tugged hard, once and then again, and he decided to obey what he felt, pulling one leg up and then his body, allowing her to slip under that arm and helping him to come upright. But every step was miserably slow. He was astonishingly, frighteningly light. Something awful had happened, and that he could heal enough to stagger this far was miraculous. But the lightness meant that a rested and strong woman, no matter how small, could push herself under his bulk and shove up hard enough to let his shattered body lay limp over her shoulders. And with her rifle in one hand and the other arm between his shrunken legs, she could run straight for nearly a hundred rapid breaths. A dried waterfall stood like a wall before them. Behind them, voices argued and debated and gradually pushed closer. And then, as she wondered what to do, a man's voice declared, There's fresh prints here. He's got a friend. She bent low and swallowed an enormous amount of air. And then, with a clean shove, she flung him over the brink of the dried falls. He was unconscious now. Shaking from fatigue, she dragged him up to where the winter currents had cut into the bank, creating a tiny shelter roofed with ruddy corundum. Into the less burnt ear, she said, Stay. And then she retrieved her rifle and ran hard up the hill, terrified that she wouldn't have time enough or that her trap had been diagnosed or that any of a thousand little mistakes could have doomed both of them. Below her, countless rifles fired at every shadow. She reached the fuses without drawing anyone's fire. Time mattered, but so did precision. She used the flint lighter to light one short fuse that she had lashed around the others and then stood back. One long breath spent wondering what to do when this didn't work. Shoot the fuses with her rifle, or detonate the trees one by one, maybe? Her doubts evaporated. Several dozen serpents sprang to life, spark and fire streaking across the dry ground, setting tiny fires before reaching the incendiary bombs. The watching post tree exploded first, the ancient trunk gouged out and bladders bursting, and then as more trees exploded below, the giant bent and fell. Dislodging rocks as well as the explosive underbrush, the shattered mess sliding rapidly downhill. Fifty breaths in the hillside quit falling. No voices were heard, no weapons, no sobs. The drainage below Mercer and the waterfall were jammed with downed timber, and as promised, much of that exposed wood was burning. 
Bladders had been shattered, soaking the mess with water and fire retardants. But when those desperate measures had done their best, the ancient forest burst into a single consuming blaze, hot enough to create a funeral pyre for every miserable monster trapped beneath. With the heat, she couldn't reach Mercer's hiding place, but he would be safe enough where he was, she reasoned, in that damp, near-underground place. He would burn only a little and heal those new wounds before dawn, most likely. This creature that never believed in any long future found herself talking to the almost dead man, telling him the story of his unlikely survival, and imagining what he might tell her about his various adventures facing down nearly thirty of the most deadly monsters in the world. She baked in the fire, and because she wanted to feel sure, she scanned both her slope and the facing slope in the unlikely chance that one or two of the humans had escaped the other's fate. Whole trees detonated, but the opposite, north-facing slope was too wet and far too steep to catch fire. Every once in a while she noticed movement, but what she saw was high on the next ridge, and they plainly weren't human shapes, and it was easiest to believe that the tattlers and other animals were running through the forest. By dawn the giant fire was reduced to red-hot coals and a thick column of black smoke. Rifle in hand, she began to walk toward Mercer, but even now the heat was intense. Her flesh threatened to blister, and each little breath hurt her throat and her chest. She thought about retreating. But then she saw the knots braving the furnace. Fifty of them, all adults, and then she realized that no, they were just the first several waves, and she couldn't count how many hundreds were climbing down the opposite slope. Some of the knots carried bladders stolen from the forest trees, busily soaking themselves and their neighbors with the cooling liquid. Like a flood they flowed into the dried steam bed, smelling the air and ground and finally discovering what they knew was somewhere close by. Mercer was dragged out into the open. She stopped, standing on her toes, not certain what to think but incapable of feeling much concern. His knots must have followed the invaders up into the forbidden forest. Unseen, they had watched the last fight and the horrible fire, and now they were dragging their great protector out of his hiding place. There were so many tiny creatures crowding in close now. Despite a lifetime of mistrust and paranoia, she couldn't understand what they wanted from the god they had worshipped for hundreds of generations. Not until one knot lifted a stone-tipped hoe over its head, driving the cutting edge into Mercer's burnt and helpless face. Twenty other knots took their swings with the same hoe, and then the pole shattered with a sharp crack. Sapphire knives were pulled from hidden belts. A thunderous chorus of cries rose up from the opposite slope. Suddenly, what might have been ten thousand shapes flowed out of the shadows, out from under the trees, fighting one another for the honor to help with, or at least witness what was plainly a wondrous, long-anticipated event. The girl saw nothing of what happened after that. Finally, obeying her mother's wise advice, she ran off those hills and across the summer sea, retrieving her waiting pack before continuing to the south, chasing after her new, old life. Summer was nearly done when the great ruby door was finally pried open, but even then booby traps continued killing and maiming, including the sudden release of a wicked green gas that slaughtered dozens of good citizens. After that tragedy there was a fearful talk and fearful thoughts. What if the female monster, that mutilated beast thrown out of the sea, was hiding in the hills waiting to inflict her terrible revenge? Traps were built and baited with piss fungi, and nothing touched them. The sharpest eyes and noses examined every piece of the island, but no recent trace of her or any other living eater of bone was found. 
When the darkest, wettest days of winter descended, the elders held a council, and it was decided that their enemies indeed had been vanquished. The ancient premonitions were true. With an ocean of patience and a handful of courage, the knots at long last had won their well-deserved freedom. Yet even when the monster's lair proved toothless and empty, it was studied only with the slowest possible deliberation. An intricate maze of tunnels had to be measured and marked. Room after room after room was carefully examined. Maps were drawn. Scribes made exhaustive inventories. The monster's furniture and his elaborate wardrobe brought endless fascination. But those were normal, knowable objects. His home was littered with mysterious wonders that needed to be examined and memorized. Those rare souls with the necessary skills gazed directly at the human-built machines, and they whispered with learned voices, and then, only when they felt ready, did they give their honest verdict. We have no idea what this device does, was the usual pronouncement. They were the hunters of unthinkable thoughts. At the beginning of time in the world, a lady naught had watched the monster throw rocks into the bay and from the action she had somehow discerned an important piece of his greater purpose. She had urged her people to mimic his insanity that next year, and her descendants learned from the monster how to build the dam and drain the bay and carefully scrape up a white film, vanishingly thin, that meant so much to their invincible eater of bone. It was the hunters who always studied what refused to be understood. To strengthen their talents, they formed a narrow sect family, gradually improving their bloodline. Countless generations of wizard-like servants whose culminating moment was to stand together in the heart of that cave-like home, debating the purpose and merits of this piece of brass or that broken cylinder of cultured diamond. At winter's end, a fleet of raiding knots landed near the burnt remains of the mineral works, but before they could move off the shoreline, they were struck dead by a rain of aluminum bullets and tiny bombs. That day, a new force set upon the world. Then came the holy first night of summer. Much talk had been invested in the proper best way to mark this event. One young hunter, a lady not with an astonishing talent for holding the odd and unimaginable behind her fiery eyes, argued successfully for a reversal of the traditional ceremony. As a nation, the knots streamed past the uprooted statue of their vanquished god, and they passed through new gaps cut into the barricade, and then, holding tight to a respectful silence, they marched up into the hill country. The strongest carried the weakest. No one was left behind. At the lead was a courageous young male who had first struck their sworn enemy, his only weapon being the common, now famous, hoe. What he carried tonight, nestled in careful hands, resembled a round stone, grayish in color and surprisingly light in weight, decorated with a multitude of folds and little fissures mirroring the ancestral mind of human beings. The hunters followed closely behind, carrying the twenty-nine souls of the wicked, blessed invaders. Into the lair went the honored leaders. The rest of the knots waited silently in the darkness of the forest, crowded beneath a giant grayboy tree. Thirty monsters were carried into a distant room. Set about that room, in neat rows and labeled in a precise, still unreadable tongue, were more than three hundred eaters of bone, the previous residents of this common grave. Some knots had argued for sinking all of these horrors into the sea. But other voices had won out, at least for the moment, and to make that moment eternal, the young hunter reminded all in her presence that little was known about the creatures they were at war with. The origins and magic of these demons remained deep mysteries, but time was deeper and patience could be eternal. 
Using the relics in the monster's sanctuary, some future generation might finally tease away all of the ignorance, and wiser souls would find themselves holding all of the tools used by their unwelcome visitors. Who could say where the next billion years would lead? Perhaps someone of power would find a compelling reason to give these dead monsters their faces again, and their limbs, and their animal voices. But not their freedom, she hoped, as did all of the good knots. My name is... she began. Mother, said the boy, grinning. Are you sure? And he laughed at one of their oldest, most cherished jokes. Of course she was his mother, and that was the only name she would even need from him. It was still just the two of them working as one. Other solitary humans lived in this forest of sky-hugging trees. But since these were relatively wealthy times for monsters, at least in this one northern corner of the world, there was no serious fighting. Nor were there any treaties of alliance either. Cooperation demanded need, and none of the resident monsters saw good reason to join forces, even for a day. I want a story, the young boy said. They were sitting in the dark, under a tattler's skin, listening to the rain hit and flow off onto the muddy ground. All right. Which story? he asked eagerly. The island, she promised. About my father? What about your father? I want to hear how he saved you and cared for you, right up until... And then his young voice trailed off into a sad, practiced silence. Another night, I think. Then what will you tell me? She wrapped her arms around her tough little monster, and she squeezed him until both of them ached. And after a while, she said, I'm going to tell you about the stars, and about the universe beyond the stars, and our greatest species, and the wonders you can see only with our mind's eyes. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Like I said, we won't run them this long on the show normally. There are a million audiobooks out there in the market, and I know many of you prefer the nice, commute-sized nugget of a show, and so do I. But this story left me reeling after I read it, and I wanted to share that experience with you as well. What this story says about post-humanity is fascinating, but what it implies will stay the same in human nature throughout the cosmic seconds is even more powerful, I think. It reminds me a bit of Orson Scott Card's The Worthing Saga, except I think it's even more badass and gripping. Some of you might disagree, and thank God for that. I think Reed has the ability to weave a story with epic and unimaginable ideas and scale, and still connect it on a personal and human level. He's one of my favorite authors, and I'll never forget reading his story, Floating Over Time, which first appeared on the other fiction podcast I edit and produce, The Drabblecast. It's a poetic and powerful story about a suicidal old man and a space-traveling AI, both learning to welcome, dread, and ultimately learn from the finality of their own end. And it's the first story I've ever had to stop and restart several times while recording throughout, because I kept crying like a little bitch. What can I say? It's potent stuff, and it made me feel very small and also very special at the same time. It won the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards that year for Best Story, and I'm confident it would have been a runner for the Hugo Awards in Best Short Story if it wasn't back in 2008 when we just started up, barely knew what the Hugo Awards were, and had a listenership of about 500. 
If you want to hear a phenomenal story that few people know about, go check it out. Floating Over Time at Drabblecast.org. It was episode 83 back in October of 2008. I say all this just in case you like what you heard this week and last week, the way that author Robert Reed writes and thinks. We use the word mind-blowing all the time in today's culture, watering it down. It's probably written on the label of that strawberry banana yogurt you're munching on right now. But few things truly blow your mind like an amazing science fiction story. Am I right? I hope this story sticks with you for a while like it stuck with me. And also, big shout-out to our narrator and Escape Pods production manager on this one, Matt Weller. Few people know what it entails reading a 30K-plus word story. It's not easy. It's a ton of work and very time-consuming. And Matt did it with clarity and style. So even if you weren't a fan of our special production this and last week, give a shout-out to Matt for his hard work on our discussion forums if you're a participant there. He's easily one of Escape Artist's greatest unsung heroes. And speaking of participating in our forums and elsewhere, Escape Pod has long valued its enormous and thriving fan community. That's why we do episode feedback each week with Nathan, like you're about to hear. Because you guys make us who we are. Well, we've revamped our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you're connected on either of those social networking tools, search for our page on Facebook as Escape Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Escape Podcast. Not Escape Pod. That's some dude who just went mountain biking and hurt his ankle because he rode his bike down a mountain. We're Escape Podcast. We love hearing from our fans and plan to be updating both more in the future. And speaking of hearing from our fans, let's go now to Escape Pod's assistant editor Nathan Lee with our feedback. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 439, Cradle and Uma, by Jeffrey Cole. This was the story of a millennia-long contest of wills between two godlike transhumans arguing about basically the Trekkian Prime Directive. Our reaction was generally positive, with a few interesting caveats and discussion points. People were largely pleased with the interactions between the two titular characters. Albion Moonlight said, quote, I like that the story didn't resort to white hat, black hat. Both Cradle and Ume thought that they were fighting for the greater good, and they both had a point. It, it isn't like Cradle was the AI that had outlived its purpose or had turned evil, and the heroic post-humans had to destroy it for the good of humanity, and it isn't like Ume was just a malicious invader that Cradle needed to defeat. They each had a version of right on their side, and happily they managed to find a compromise instead of simply making the issue zero-sum. Varda noted the story's thematic underpinnings, calling it a great spin on the trickster versus the divine. A la Prometheus, or Loki, serpent in the Garden of Eden, the trickster's job is to advocate for humanity's right to knowledge, while the divine, for a variety of reasons, opposes this. The point of the story being a variant on the great white savior trope was raised, prompting Potato Knight to respond in part, The thing that troubles me about this story is that it seems to buy into and reaffirm a very Western-centered view of human progress, the assumption that, given enough time, any culture will basically develop into scientific, rational, industrial, technological society. This is the model promoted by, for example, the Civilization Games, that technological advancements proceed according to a predetermined path, and that given sufficient time, that path will always be followed. I believe that point of view is empirically wrong and dangerous, 
from the point of wrongness, note that behaviorally modern humanity is only 50,000 years old, but uncountable human civilizations have existed in that time, the number of civilizations that have followed the sort of path depicted in the story is very small, and even among those civilizations, the tech tree model is flawed because technologies respond to the particular circumstances of their area. On the point of dangerousness, it suggests that societies like the one depicted here are just a less developed form of our own, and they'll eventually grow up. It's just a hop, skip, and jump from that attitude to seeing and treating these societies as children who need help from the adults an attitude that has given rise to quite the parade of atrocities in all too recent history. Well, that's all we have for this week. Join us next week when we decide whether or not to let the comments for episode 440 struggle with the story on their own or point them to the cliff notes. See you then! Thanks, Nathan. Alright, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our opening and closing music was brought to you by monster surf rock band Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quote this week comes from Bob Marley, who said, Man is a universe within himself.